man was seated in an airplane and beside him was this very pretty woman. The man himself was a lawyer and he was twiddling his thumb because he had nothing else to do. Looking at this woman who's deeply engrossed in a magazine, he wants to break the monotony and begin to speak to her. He tries every part, but the woman is so self-engrossed, she's not give, going to give him the moment until he devises the scheme and then looks at the woman and says, look, woman, I want to place an offer before you. Here it is. Look at this. This is the offer I have for you. And even as this woman is listening, this is what he says. If you ask me any question and I cannot answer it, I'll give you 50 US dollars. But if I ask you a question and you can't answer it, all you've got to do is give me five US dollars. The woman thought for a moment and said, this is my opportunity if not to earn the 50 US dollars, at least to silence this trumpet a bit. And so even as she said, go along, the man said, here's my first question to you. What's the distance between the earth and the nearest star? She thought for a moment, didn't know the answer, pulled out her purse, took out five US dollars, handed it over to him. Now he's all set to go with this great abundance of knowledge to handle any question that the woman can place before him. He's waiting. And even as he's waiting, the woman raises the question, here it is, what goes up a hill with three legs and comes back with four legs? He's totally stumped. He even makes a satellite call at great expense, tries to Google in and search. He finally gives up, opens his wallet reluctantly, pulls out the 50 US dollars, hands it over to the woman. She graciously takes the money, puts it into a purse and begins to read the magazine. The man says, now please hold on, but what's the answer to that question? She opens her wallet, takes out the five US dollars and hands it over and says, I don't know. <laughs> You're wishing somewhere that you have the promise of that kind of woman to answer if not silence some of the voices that are coming across the worldviews. And our team is constantly engaged in standing before audiences in the corporate world and universities across the globe as they're handling the hard-nosed questions of our time to respond. This morning, I want to address you in a message titled, Three Longings, One Answer. Three Longings, One Answer. Would you bow your head, please, with me in a moment of prayer. Speak, Father, this morning, that we may hear none other than your beautiful words. Words that draw us to a clear view of you. And in that view, Lord, grant us the understanding that every longing is met only in you. Thank you for listening to us. Cover your servant. Bless everyone here who is listening. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. It's a world full of longings, isn't it? The rich long for peace. The poor long for affluence. The educated long for something higher. The ones that don't know look for literacy. The sick hope for health. The healthy long for pleasure. The chain is circuitous. My team leader was addressing a gathering of people at Bollywood. And even as he was listening to some of those voices, one of those voices says, my problem is not a problem with that which is pain. My problem is a problem with that which is pleasure. As you look at the question of longing across the world, you'll find the gospel writers catch Jesus for you in some fascinating pictures. The gospel writers capture him in early fashions as he intersects the, the crossroads of our lives and touches us and reaches us where we need him the most. 
to bring for you expressions of the longing of the heart of man. Let me quote for you from the book, Can Man Live Without God? by Dr. Ravi K. Zacharias. He brings for us the words of a song that's trained across the airwaves many years ago, but it brings the ponderings and the questions of man out beautifully. Please hear these words. From the canyons of the mind, we wander on and stumble blind. Wade through the often tangled maze of starless nights and sunless days, hoping for some kind of clue, a road to lead us to the truth, but who will answer? Is our hope in walnut shells worn round the neck with temple bells, or deep within some cloistered walls where hooded figures pray in shawls, or high upon some dusty shells, or in the stars, or in ourselves, who will answer? If the soul is darkened by a fear it cannot name, if the mind is baffled when the rules don't fit the game, then who will answer, who will answer, who will answer? Please notice that the songwriter scripted it well. The longing of the heart of man is not for an institution, a philosophy, a concept, an ideology. The longing of the heart of man is for personage who will answer. Then Jesus went up on a mountainside and sat down with his disciples. The Jewish Passover feast was near. When Jesus looked up and saw a great crowd coming toward him, he said to Philip, Where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? He asked this only to test him, for he already had in mind what he was going to do. Philip answered him, Eight months' wages would not buy enough bread for each one to have a bite. Another of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up. Here is a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish. But how far will they go among so many? Jesus said, Have the people sit down. There was plenty of grass in that place, and the men sat down, about 5,000 of them. Jesus then took the loaves, gave thanks, and distributed to those who were seated as much as they wanted. He did the same with the fish. When they had all had enough to eat, he said to the disciples, Gather the pieces that are left over. Let nothing be wasted. So they gathered them and filled twelve baskets with the pieces of the five barley loaves left over by those who had eaten. May God himself add his blessing to our reading, understanding, and obedience of his holy word. As you look at the gospel writers script their pages for you, you find from time to time that they present large crowds following Jesus. I've always argued that if Jesus walked flesh and blood in the now times, BBC, CNN, NDTV, every channel worth news would have to keep broadcasting or telecasting what he was saying. Because what he was saying was changing the meaning of life. What he was doing was changing the meaning of compassion. Where he was pointing us to was redefining the meaning of destiny. Jesus was one person you could not miss across history's timeline. And even as you look at this section, you find there are three longings that are presented in three scarcities for you. Number one is the scarcity of love. If you reconcile this text with the record in Matthew chapter 14, we find a parallel record and in verse 15 the Bible reads thus, as evening approached the disciples came to him and said, this is a remote place and it's already getting late. Send the crowds away so they can go to the villages and buy themselves something to eat or some food. One cannot help but ponder as you lay your eyes upon a text like that as to what was the reason that the disciples brought in this suggestion. Could it be that Simon Peter 
wanted to just make a visit to his mother-in-law in the evening hours. Someone said, Simon must be given a badge in discipleship because he followed Jesus, although Jesus healed his mother-in-law. And some of us might like that one. But as you look at Simon, was he wanting to go and visit his mother-in-law? Was Judas wanting to go and tinker a bit with the account book? Were some of them just wanting a family moment? We can't ascribe ill intent to these men for they chose to follow Jesus. But we do understand at that moment that if there was nothing pressing that was calling them away, there was no passion that was going to keep them with the crowd. Somehow there was no compelling love that would cause them to think what beyond this moment for this crowd. And as you look at love as a longing, I see three types of love. Let me capture them quickly for you. The first one I call the give and take love. It's says you give me something I'll give you something you make me a phone call I'll make you a phone call you send me a card I'll send you a card you forget my birthday and I'll forget yours as well it's a kind of give and take love and then of course you got the second category I call it the take and take love this is the love which masquerades in the public squares as fashionable but mitigates in the private life as a curse it's this love that you find the movies defy our song amplify you find our books glorify but it never satisfies it's this love that comes across on the airwaves and the radio in just one section of FM music you've got Katy Perry coming up and singing for you as a girl that song I kissed a girl I liked it and then you've got the pussy cat dolls following their singing open up my buttons babe and as if all the orchestration for pleasure was just not enough you've got the commentary and the footnote to the pain as Green Day comes along with their Boulevard of Broken Dreams, all in one section of FM music, capturing for you the abuse of the lines and then the horrors of living with the limitations of what that love is all about. As you look at this world, Michael J. Murray, in his book Reason for the Hope Within Us, describes this world as a postmodern world, a world in which relativism is the key. What is relativism? What's right for you is not right for me. What's right for me tonight? need not be right for me tomorrow morning. It's a shifting world without standards. And that's why you've got this young chap. He goes to the card store. He looks at all the cards and find a car, finds a card that says, to the only girl I love in all the world, he buys 10 of the same card. And then, of course, you meet this other young chap and you say, hi there, how's your love life doing? He says, oh, it's going great with Malika. Three weeks down the line, you meet him. How's Malika? No, it's Monica now. And then, of course, like the songwriter says, he's moving to Jessica and Erica. And soon, of course, you've got uh, uh, Yashika. And then, of course, all you've got is Konika. You're left with photographs and memories. That's the way the downside of the relationships are. And as you look at this kind of a world, we're even confused about the moral issues of the man-woman relationship. And so you've got the whole argument for the homosexual movement. And even as you hear those voices coming, speaking about our leanings, you've got the atheistic philosophers of our times bringing to you their own arguments. In one of those very powerful scripts from the atheistic worldview, the naturalistic worldview, Richard Dawkins of Oxford brings to you the God delusion, a bestseller in its own 
account Artemis has brought its rebuttals in its own way to the arguments there but one of the arguments that Dawkins brings out is this when you look at human behavior he says we're essentially dancing to our DNA and even as you look at that logic and you look at every behavioral curse or pattern within our humanity you simply ascribe that section that says we're dancing to our DNA does it really work think about it please what if your neighbor encroaches on the property rejoice he's just dancing to his DNA what if your teenage daughter gets pregnant that's all right she's just dancing to her DNA and if you look at the troubles your boss is giving you oh he's just dancing to his DNA and as you look at the arguments bring it closer imagine for a moment someone you truly love is murdered in cold blood imagine that that moment is is passed on and even as it passes you find the police make the inquiry find the person who's the perpetrator of the crime and then bring you a moment when you could be face to face with the murderer you take the challenge of meeting the person you're walking through cold, cold ice security places of, of tight security and finally you come eye to eye before the murderer someone who killed someone you truly love and even as you look into those cold eyes you're raising the question with tears but why did you do this to my precious one and then in the coldness of that room you hear a voice that says I was simply dancing to my DNA does it satisfy anything at all for us to just take that kind of an imagined route of ascribing morality to only that much and saying we're all puppets to something we can't even understand but sometimes even Christian believers can force find ourselves falling into a category like this because we do sometimes do something like the argument from the atheistic point of view I don't know if you've heard the story of Satan sitting upon a street corner and crying profusely someone walked up to him and said mr. Satan why are you crying he said I'm crying because these Christian people are blaming me for many things I never did in all my life and sometimes that's true we don't want to say that we are lustful we blame it on some spirit of lust we don't want to say that we are people who are jealous we blame it on a spirit of jealousy you and I are called to be faithful to who we are search me O God try me O God test me O God know me O God as you look at life you find there is the take and take love it destroys us breaks us debases us that's the second love and the third love of course is the give it all love for the Bible describes it best in the words of John 3:16. for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son and even as you look at these three loves you find the the scarcity of human love is really indicating our need for a divine love and that divine love is found in the personage of Christ I want to move to the second scarcity that we find reflected in the scripture for us you find the Bible says in John 6 and verse 8 another of his disciples Andrew Simon Peter's brother spoke up and this is what he said here is a boy with five small barley loaves and two fish Please notice that Andrew is described in what fashion in the Bible? What's he described as? I like to ask my congregations uh, questions, especially the listening side, because some of us preachers go on and on, and the people are silent night, holy night, deep in heavenly peace before we know it. How is Andrew introduced here? He's introduced as Simon Peter's brother. You find Andrew is a second line person. 
And that's why a second line person can identify a second line person. If I was in Andrew's place, I was probably looking for the owner of the old saints bakery or, you know, uh, one of those sweet chariot guys or someone who can bring in the pastries and stuff like that or the civil supplies minister. But out here you find Andrew is looking for a little boy. And that's something fascinating. Let me just make a digression at this time. Remember this, please. At the work of God in little hearts is a work for big times. It's the little boys and the little girls in your churches that will one day turn up to be the Moody's and the Billy Grahams and the people who can move and shake the world. And Andrew was someone who could see that. You know, when we're talking about food, it's a very interesting subject. And I'm sure most of you would subscribe to a goodness of the menu. As I think about food, I think about this pastor. He had serious troubles with his cholesterols and diabetes. He went to the doctor, and the doctor was a church member of his. He said, Pastor, I'm looking at your blood report they're not good and I want you to know that you can have only one chapati at breakfast so the pastor says can I have it before breakfast or after breakfast please you know the United Nations in one of its reports said that 40% of the global population lives on 94% of world income half of the population lives on two dollars a day and over a billion people live on less than half of that it was the year 1989. One of our national magazines ran the story of a Bombay or a Mumbai vegetable vendor. He was carrying a basket of vegetables and trying to cross a railway line when a suburban train ran over him. In what ensued, a concerned group of gatherers gathered around, and even as they were looking at the tragic scene, one of those onlookers found a woman picking up the basket of the dead man and hurriedly collecting the vegetables. Irked that here was a woman who was making good of another man's loss, stealing the vegetables of a dead man, he was infuriated. He walked up to the woman and questioned her and said, how dare you do this? Only then, this man's heart broke. For the woman with tears streaming across her cheeks looked at the man and said, sir, I'm not a stranger. I'm not a thief. I'm the wife of the man who was just killed. And unless I pick these vegetables and I sell them by the evening hour, I will not have money to conduct his funeral. Every time you sip out of a hot mug of a chocolate drink, a coffee, a cup of tea, a Coke, a Pepsi, every time you're transported in a, in a two-stroke or a four-stroke vehicle, Every time you sit into a comfortable seat, every time you have reasonable health, would you not realize that you have been above all people blessed and adequately so? As you look at this little boy, he's being brought by Andrew, and you find Andrew has a perplexing question in his own mind. He says, Lord, in a world of adult problems, adult economics, adult solutions, I've found only a boy, and he's a boy with only five barley loaves and two fish. And by the way, barley was the food of the poor. So he's not only a little boy, he's a poor little boy. And even as Andrew looks at the whole problem of resources, he's confounded. Here's a large crowd. How can we ever meet the need? I don't know even at this hour whether you're looking at the overdraft in your bank account, whether you're looking at the uncertain times about the EMI that you need to clear, whether you're looking at the uncertainty about your child's future education. You're looking at your life and saying, 
Where are the resources? Even as this little boy stands upon those planes of expectations, he's going to learn a lesson for a lifetime that's going to change everything about everything for him. But would you please remember this one line from the reformer Martin Luther before I go to my final concluding thought. It is this. Martin Luther said it only as grandly as he could. He said, I have held many things in my hand. Those things I have lost. But that which I entrusted to the hands of God, that I have and shall have forever. Put your hand into the hands of God and everything you possess. The lack of, uh, of, of our resources indicates the need for a divine providence. I want to move to the most challenging part of this message, which is the scarcity of faith. And let me take you to a moment that is more good for the telling value. I'm not sure for the truth of the narrative, but it's good for the storytelling part. It seemed many centuries ago, the Pope made an edict that all the people of the Jewish community must leave Rome. The Pope decided that they had to leave. And so there was an uproar in the Jewish community. And they came up with their voices. Finally, the, the Pope said, all right, I give you a deal. If you have someone who can debate with me, and if that person wins the debate on your behalf, then the Jews can stay. If you lose the debate, you'll have to leave. And so they searched for their scholars and big people. None of them were willing to come up because this was a big deal of a debate. Until they met a man called Moishe in their community. And Moishe had nothing to win, nothing to lose. He was a man in the backwaters in a sense. He said, I'll take the debate. But there's one precondition to it. The Pope needs to know this. Because I'm not very articulate. The debate's going to be a silent debate. And if the Pope accepts that term and condition, I'm good to go. So they informed the Pope, can it be a silent debate? The Pope said, that's all right. And so the cardinals and all the top people of the, of the Vatican were there. And then, of course, some people from the Jewish community. The Pope was seated upon his seat. Moshe crossed the hall. And then, of course, the Pope looked at Moshe and then pointed three of his fingers upwards. Moshe thought for a moment and then pointed his index finger back. The Pope thought for a moment further, raised his right hand and circled it above his head. Moishe thought for a moment, looked at the Pope, took his right hand and pointed it down to the earth. And then, of course, the Pope took the communion wine and wafer. Moishe opened his bag and pulled out an apple. The Pope stood up, gave him an applause and said, Fantastic, this man is brilliant. He's won the debate that Jews can't stay. Oh, there was ecstasy among the Jewish community. And then, of course, the cardinals and everyone gathered around the Pope in a quiet meeting and said, What happened there, Pope? You know, he said, that man was brilliant. I raised three of my fingers to say God is a trinity. But that man said, you know, to both our faiths, there's still one God. And then, of course, I indicated with my hands that God was above us. He was a smart man. He said, God is right here with us too. And then, of course, I took out the communion wafer and the wine to remind us about the forgiveness of sins. He took out the apple to remind me of original sin. That man was brilliant. And then, of course, the Jewish community gathered around their newfound hero, Moshe, and said, what was that about, Moshe? Oh, you know, Moshe said, the Pope looked at me sternly and said, I give the Jewish people only three days to leave. And I said, not one of us is leaving, Pope. <laughs> and then, of course, he said, I'm going to have you cleared out of the city. He said, we're all staying right here, Pope. We're not going anywhere. And then someone said, what was the last thing about? Moshe said, I don't know. He took out his lunchbox and I took out mine as well. <laughs>
Living in a world of many symbolisms, one is cautioned that to assume from silence or symbols, we might land up in very different conclusions from what was meant. And so the Bible scholars edict to every student that a text without its context is a pretext, is a very good one to remember. But let me very quickly take you to some thoughts. Please follow me very carefully. I'm going to be borrowing a little bit from Oxford mathematician John Lennox, a brilliant man who works along with our team from time to time. He brings you into view of some very important transitions of thought. It was in the 18th century during the Enlightenment that men and women began to believe that science had prevailed over faith. In fact, that reason had prevailed over faith. That scientific progress had actually made faith unsustainable and untenable. And since then, those voices in the atheistic form and the naturalistic forms have only grown louder. Let me quote for you some thoughts. It was Steven Weinberg, Nobel Prize winner, at a conference between the relationship of faith and science. He said these words, the world needs to wake up from the long nightmare of religion. Anything we scientists can do to weaken the hold of religion should be done and maybe in fact our greatest contribution to civilization. In that very forum, Richard Dawkins, whose book The God Delusion I mentioned about, these words, I'm utterly fed up with respect we've been brainwashed into bestowing upon religion. In The God Delusion, Richard Dawkins quotes Robert Persig, the author of Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance, who said this, when one person suffers from a delusion, it's called insanity. But when many people suffer from a delusion, it's called religion. Please think about it. You'll find these voices coming at you from different forms. Richard Dawkins dedicates his book to Douglas Adams. And Douglas Adams is quoted in these words, Isn't it enough that a garden is beautiful without having to believe that there are fairies at the bottom of it? And this is a question about the universe. Isn't it enough to believe that a garden is beautiful without having to believe that there are fairies at the bottom of it? Dr. Lennox argues and says, This proposition gives it away. The atheistic view is suggesting false alternatives. He says the assumption is this. They're assuming that it's only fairies or nothing at all at the bottom. What about a gardener, says Dr. Lennox? What about someone who set the garden into place and tended it? It need not always be only fairies. As you look at life, the gospel writers argued powerfully for us that they were eyewitnesses of what they saw. Luke scripted for us that his was a very carefully examined record. And as you look at the scriptures, you find that the book we hold in our hands is supported greatly by manuscripts that have been tested, a book across time that has stood the challenges of many intellects, a book that is not only good to read, but changes our lives forever. And the gospel writers were willing to go under public scrutiny, if you would, as you look at what they presented. Please hear the words of Dr. Zacharias. He says, the Christian faith is not a leap in the dark, it's a well-placed trust in the light of the world, Jesus. A little boy was confronted by an atheist. The atheist came to the little boy with an apple in his hand and said, Son, if you tell me where God is, I will give you this apple. That boy thought for a moment and said, Sir, I will give you two apples if you tell me where God is not. Boy, I'll give you one apple if you tell me 
where God is. Sir, I'll give you two if you tell me where God is not. You find it's very important for us to realize that the Christian faith has got its counter perspectives and arguments. And even if you don't know an answer to a question, there's someone there who's done the research for you and you can back it up. Look at the Christian world for a moment. We've tied it through storms. We've tried it through the toughest experiences. A man like Joseph Scriven can lose the woman he wants to marry and then he can stripped a song like what a friend we have in Jesus. Horatius Spafford can lose four of his daughters in the Atlantic in a ship accident. He can pen the words even as the ship is passing that very side of the accident as he's going by. He can write those words that says it is well, it is well with my soul. You find it was Blaise Pascal, French mathematician, physicist, inventor, writer, philosopher who lived between 1623 and 1662. He said these words, the heart has reasons that reason itself does not know. The heart has reasons that reason itself does not know. And sometimes you find in a world of many questions, the spirit lays to you reasons that no one else can fathom because that is the gift for the believer. As I said, this is the last thought, the whole challenge of the scarcity of faith. And as you look at it, you find there's a contrast in the gift the boy brings to Jesus. Now capture the scene, please, for me. Even as this little boy is holding Uncle Andrew's hand and walking up to Jesus. He sees for the first time in full view the greatest one he can ever spy. The one that is the lily of the valley, the bright and morning star, the fairest of 10,000. A little boy is walking towards him. And even as he walks upon those lawns of expectation, you find Andrew thinks that the gift is insufficient. Jesus thinks the gift is incredible. Andrew sees limitations. Jesus sees opportunity. And even as the boy comes to Jesus, think about it please. Doubt sees the obstacles. Faith sees the way. Doubt sees the darkest night. Faith sees the day. Doubt dreads to take a step. Faith soars on high. Doubt questions who believes. Faith answers I. And even as you look at this particular crowd and you wonder what kind of a crowd it is, Matthew says in his record there were 5,000 men, women, and children. Do a quick mathematic with me. If there were 5,000 men and 1,000 of them had not yet experienced the pleasures and the joy of marriage, that leaves you with 1,000 bachelors. And if there are 4,000 married men, how many wives? Don't look so confused. In today's context, we're a bit confused. 4,000 wives. So what's the mathematic like? 4,000 men, 4,000 women, 8,000 plus 1,000 bachelors, that's 9,000. Imagine a conservative figure of two kids per family, that's 8,000 kids straight away. You're looking at a crowd, something like 17,000, if you may please. Work the math anyway, it's more than 5,000. And now the little boy is walking up to Jesus with five little pieces of barley loaf and and two fish. He watches Jesus receive him. And even as the little boy sees that, he sees something fascinating for himself. Because I do believe that even in the quest for love, this boy was given the highest answer to love. He understood in the open arms of Jesus that that was love. He didn't have to search anywhere else. He looks at that moment, and even as he does, as Jesus opens his 
arm to him, you find the little boy runs up to Jesus and he finds the highest description of love ever appear before his eyes. And even as the little boy lays into the hands of Jesus his little lunch pack that his mama packed for him, he watches Jesus raise that lunch pack to the heavens. And have you ever wondered what Jesus prayed that day? I imagine Jesus saying to the Father, Father, this is no big deal for you and me. We're here together in this. Open the eyes of all these people as they see what we can do. And even as the boy watches, one piece of bread broken becomes two. Give away one, you've got one. Give away that one, you've got none. But the math is sort of befuddling his mind. He watches more and more and more appear. If he knows the word hallelujah, he's bouncing up and down with it. And even as he's screaming and thanking God, he knows he's seen something fascinating. You know, he goes back home, I imagine, on the long ride back to his village, and somewhere down there with the boys he plays with, he tells them, you know something, I met a great personality today, I met Jesus. They're saying, impossible, he's a v VIP man, you couldn't have met him. He says, boys, I did meet him. And then, of course, they're saying, thing is a bit imagining things. He says, you know something? He took my lunch pack and he fed 5,000 men, more women and children. All the guys are saying, boy, surely there's something wrong. But the next morning's newspaper arrives and if it did, it's got the photograph splashed across the news headline. A little boy gives his lunch pack to Jesus and Jesus feeds more than 5,000 people. That little boy's life was changed forever. In a world scarce for love, you find Jesus became the embodiment of love. In a world of scarcities for resources, he had met the one who had wealth more than on a thousand hills and in a million mines. He'd met the one who could answer every question of fate because here was Jesus the very answer to him three longings one answer who will answer who will answer who will answer the question goes on and even as you think about it in 1989 there was an earthquake in Armenia 30,000 people died homes were flattened a father raced out of his home and ran towards the local school at which he'd left his little boy Arman earlier that morning. And even as the father ran towards the school, he reiterated the promise of his heart to his boy. Ever so often he told his little boys, he held them close, eye to eye, Arman, no matter what, I'll be there for you. And now as the father ran, watching buildings that had fallen, he wondered if his son was ever alive, that he could reach him. When he reached the scene of the school, his heart fell because it was completely flattened to the ground. He ran to the rear side where his boy's class was and began to move earth and stone and debris. He kept digging and digging. More parents came. The police chief arrived. The fire brigade came. But as the hours passed, Hope eluded them. People said, the night is coming. It's all over now. But the father remembered his word to his son. Arman, no matter what, I'll be there for you. And so he continued to dig 10 hours, 12 hours, 15 hours, 24 hours. He was still digging. The 38th hour, he was way below the debris. He moved a stone. Daddy, daddy. He heard that cry. And even as he peered through the darkness, he said, Arman, is that you? Arman said, Dad, it's me. When the building collapsed, some of my friends survived. 
And I told him this. I said, if my dad has survived this earthquake, he's going to come and save me. And dad says, son, come out quickly. And Arman says, dad, I won't come out first. Let all my friends come out first. Because between their coming out and my coming out, if something goes wrong once again, I still know in my heart that no matter what, you'll be there for me. Across history's timeline, there are two pieces of wood, one that spans the horizon this way and the other that points you to the heavens. There's only one heart that's scripted on the canvas of that sacrifice in the indelible blood sign of his own son, a love that will never go away, a resource that will never end, and a fate that shall never fall. He is the one who is the answer to every question. And he's the one who looks into your eyes and says, no matter what, I'll be there for you. Let's look to God in prayer. Because he lives, I can face tomorrow. Let's just sing that one verse. And even as we do, if you're saying, God spoke to me this morning, and I just want to pray with you, would you just quietly slip up a hand and put it down as a sign of your response to God as we sing just that chorus, Because He Lives. raise it up once and pull it down. God bless you. Yes. Yes. Right at the back. God bless you. In the front. God bless you. Yes. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you. Thank you, Father, for sending us your only Son. Thank you, because every longing of the human heart finds its exclusive answer in Him. The most perfect embodiment of love, resource, and the one object of faith that shall never disappoint us. Teach us that you still are the God who moves mountains, who can do the impossible, and help us to go forth and tell this world of so great a Savior. Bless the ministry of all people's church, Pastor Ashish, Amy, the whole team here. We give you thanks for the graduating class. Go before them, Lord. Thank you for listening to us and especially for those who responded to you this morning. We pray, Lord, for adequate signs this week where they will know that because they have honored you, you have taken many steps to honor them. In Jesus' name, we give you thanks. Amen. We trust that this message was a blessing to you. We'd love to hear from you. You can email us at contact at apcwo.org. Also, visit our website www.apcwo.org for additional resources. Thank you for listening and God bless you.